I won an award, quote unquote, but it was a very ironic award. Uh, they made up awards at this art show. And it was, I won most preciously overworked art. And, you know, I laughed. I got my little statuette. But I thought, God, that's that's rough. Because <laughs> like, that, you know, any good zinger lands because it's accurate. That one, that one landed hard. Hey, yeah. Welcome. As the years pass, I identify the inherent conflict of my being. I'd say that I have at least six active hobbies and interests going on at a time, plus a half dozen more semi-actives. These, plus myriad personal projects, my novels being chief among them, Molly, friends, family, life, and work, they just bog down my system. And I'm not alone in this. I mean, creative people, they're always busy. And my peccadillo is that I'm a monotasker, which makes it very hard to make great advancement on many different things because work and life interject on an unscheduled basis. And so I just don't find the time to really just kind of plow through stuff. So it's very tough because, you know, the the road to traditional publishing, it's not easy. And even if you have a like a hip book in your back pocket, it doesn't matter. The industry is really well guarded to protect the publishers, editors, and agents from like the tens of thousands of fire hoses of would-be authors aiming at them at all times. So I totally understand that because they wouldn't be able to do their job. And the hard part is that I established my comic book and graphic design career on developing personal connections, you know, phone calls and later on emails. That was how I got in the front door. What I did after that was all on me. But the publishing industry doesn't afford an easy avenue for this. And the chief pipeline in is the dreaded query letter. Over the past year, I've done the research and made passes at this literary cold call, but I never felt like I nailed it. With my 2024 goal of landing representation for my book series, I need to have three things in place. A finished manuscript, a query letter, and a synopsis in three sizes, half page, one page, and two pages. And I have the book done, but the query and the synopsis, they need help. So to apply the money and timeline standard to getting this done, I registered for a two-part query letter workshop. Last week was the first night. You know, there were no great revelations, but it forced me to gather up all the elements and work on the damn thing. Knowing that there's a clock running and that I paid for this, I carved time out of my schedule to work on this. Tomorrow will be the second and final night of the workshop to get this thing in shape. Of course, if you've been paying attention to this opening, you'll know that leaves the synopsis. And 
I can't even wrap my head around that now. It is that is one of the banes of my existence is taking a gigantic thing like a novel and reducing it to these bite-sized bits. Last week, I mentioned um, my friend Brett Lewis is recovering from a significant brain trauma event, and the support has been amazing. Uh, the word went out. The GoFundMe is doing quite well. They raised their goal, and which is great. Of course, that just means keep getting the message out there because we want to really help Brett have all the runway he needs to get back into life. If you could pass the message on, uh, however it is, by sharing this podcast, by looking up his GoFundMe, which is in the show notes, and sharing that with people. If you are a fan of his writing, his book like The Wintermen and and many others, he is someone you want to have back at the keyboard. He's great. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope it all works for him. So let's get the algorithm working for Brett. So today's guest is Bob Fingerman. Bob is a, I, you know, he is an icon in the industry. I, I'm sure he's cringing if he hears that. So, but he is just one of the people that many of my generation saw as the a guy who was leading the charge because he was just a few years older than us and he had the flag and he was doing his thing. If we were inclined to do our thing, our own thing, Bob was a person you looked at. It was a great talk, lots of laughing, no surprise, and just a lot of candor sort of some really deep thoughts. And Bob's talking about his new book, That's Some Business You're In. And it's a retrospective of his career for over 40 years, or I guess 40 years now. Let's not make Bob older than he is. It's, I guess, it's, yeah, it's coming out on Zoop, I guess, as today or maybe tomorrow. But there's a link in the description. You can go check out the campaign. I got to read a preview, really enjoyed it. The art, it's great to see a creator's arc, you know, from childhood through the early years and on as a person who enjoys this type of work, we get a, a big kick to see all these elements and a lot of the working drawings. I mean, you know, Bob has got a million styles in his pocket. It's a great conversation. I really, really hope you enjoy it as much as I had having it. That's a terrible way to finish a sentence, but it's what you get. So this is me, Bob Fingerman. Are we? Wait, tell me when we're recording. We're 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 always recording. Oh dear. Yeah. No. This is this is it's a magical start. We just start, and then <laughs> I find a point which which it becomes like a contact point. But let me just okay, say, very good. When I started at SVA in 1987, your ghost was still haunting the halls in some fashion. <laughs> I don't doubt it. I was kind of a jerk. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, looking back at my SVA years, um, oh boy, looking back at, well, I mean, that's kind of the kind of, I, I, I suppose that's sort of the, the, the theme of, 
of this conversation in a way. If you're preparing a book that's uh, a career overview, it's also a life overview. Mm-hmm. And um, you're not necessarily going to uh, gonna like everything you see in your past. So you're kind of confronted not only by what you did, but who you were when you did it. I'm not saying I was a monster at S- SVA, <laughs> but I think uh, I probably could have been nicer to people. I was very, uh, everyone, I don't know if everyone does, but I think a lot of, certainly a lot of uh, artists go through their angry young man phase or angry, at least young person phase. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And my first year at SVA, I think I was an absolute horror because I went through that year pretty much with a chip on my shoulder because I felt like I had taken a step backwards. So that year, I think I was entitled because, you know, I went to the High School of Art and Design. And so I'd already done all of the foundation year stuff for the last few years. So I thought like, wait, why am I doing this rudimentary all stuff over again. again? It just feels like I've I've been here. I've done this. And so I was awful other than life drawing. Life drawing was great because I never got to work with, you know, nude models before but it was interesting that i think i think they are or and you know are in the terms of the 80s um they were dead set on their foundation curriculum as if this is like it, i think it would have been a, a, like an achievement you know to have gotten out of any one of those five sort of courses that they were like running us through I think I did manage to bail on, oh, sculpture. For some reason, I managed to bail on you, that. I don't think you missed anything. And um, and that's because I made such a show of it. <laughs> Again, <laughs> like, I couldn't do things. I couldn't do half measures. I remember what, these are the things that are burned into your memory forever mm-hmm. because you feel like, ah, that was sort of a triumph and a failure all at once. It was, <laughs> you know, uh, a failure of, of, of character and a triumph of, of sarcasm. Um, right. Because I remember it was early in the year and we had to do, it was going to be reductive as opposed to uh, additive sculpture with clay. It was reductive by chipping from a piece of a big block of plaster. And so the teacher had everyone go out and get a cardboard box to pour the plaster into. And I remember me and one other person were like, okay, well, we're, we're going out to get a uh, foil and Vaseline. And the teachers, you don't need to do that. So we went out, we lined our boxes with foil, smeared Vaseline, then poured. And when everyone else was trying to peel off, the cardboard, the, the, which the cardboard responded yeah. to the thing. I just lifted my box and let the plaster slide right out and then shatter on the ground just to show that it would come out. And then I left and I said, I'm not, I won't be back. <laughs> and I wasn't. So, so it was both one of those like, oh, yeah, you know, I sure showed that teacher. It was your moment. It was, yeah, but what a. What a, I don't know, what a poor victory that is. So anyway, that was first year at SVA was, you know, occasionally getting thrown out of classes, occasionally making other students cry because I was, 
I thought that uh, parodying other people's work would be funny because it's mm. like, hey, Mad Magazine, uh, National Lampoon, parody's funny. Well, not when you're parodying the nice, sensitive kids' work. So awful, awful. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob. <laughs> Hi, listeners. You're listening to a monster, but I'm a monster in recovery. So please. <laughs> I promise. Um... I promise I look back and I say, okay, do better, do better. That's my do motto, better. do better. Well, I remember I, you know, there, it was quick, this installation of, you know, the snark, um, tear it apart gene, you know, like it, it felt like that was a, it, it immediately you're inoculated into that one going to that, like at the school in those, in those days where it was just like time to rip everything apart and be sort of like kind of negative towards things rather than just be like completely excited about everything. Well, I think, yeah, that's also consequence of the whole Gen X. I mean, Reagan was still president, you know, it was, there was a lot of, not that anger ever goes out of fashion, but I think there was a sort of air of futility combined with optimism you know it was this sort of like i'm gonna do great but why bother right right. i don't know you know i mean i know my my first year there uh afghanistan one let's call it that afghanistan one uh was going on and they were talking about bringing back the draft i remember that and I was terrified. I was like, you know, I remember going to sign up for selective service on my 18th birthday with my mom. You know, we went to, I think it was the post office. And I was absolutely petrified. I thought, I don't want to go. And she said, don't you worry about that. Well, you're going to go to Canada. You know, my son's not going off to going off to fight in Afghanistan. And I, when I told my dad that, and of course, he was a World War II vet, uh, with great disgust, he said to me, you're not a pacifist, are you? And I said, no, I'm a coward. And he kind of looked at me and he just sort of smirked. It was like, eh, what am I going to do? Oh. <laughs> so, I mean, there you go. It, it's, it's the right answer. I'm a coward. I love it. It, it, it. It's You can't argue that one, you know? Yeah, and it wasn't strictly speaking true either. But then again, my political views weren't particularly nuanced at that point. It's not like I could say, well, I think that this whole thing is, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I was, believe me, I was not picking up the New York Times when I was 18. No. I was reading heavy metal and, and you know, underground comics. Sure. Yeah. No, I, and I mean, and thank you for forwarding, um, your book that's some uh that's some business you're in because i really i have enjoyed reading the whole thing it's just great oh well they so they they did send okay yeah because that's just and that's just a taste because there's a lot more there's a lot more it's no it, it's great and i you know I, there's so many sort of identification points that i just think are these commonalities that many cartoonists share in you know in their upbringing and these experiences whether they were in new york city or not in new york city i think there's a yeah this sort of um you know there's a there's a great sense of an outsider in many cartoonists and um that look i was i was a tiny kid growing up i was just like this little wee wee lad and 
you know, I think being able to draw was my ability to have agency around the around me. I'm sorry, am I speaking or are you speaking? <laughs> no, that's exactly, I mean, that's, yeah, I was the tiniest kid for many years. I was not just the smallest boy in my class. I was the smallest kid in my grade. So yeah, uh, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it's just so when I was reading your, your reflection on that and I'm like, oh yeah, no, that was absolutely me, you know, like spending my weekends, you know, with my, my father, you know, from the divorce family and just, you know, mm-hmm getting lost in every little thing I could make, you know, with my hands and have, you know, fine by me. Yeah. Yeah. Those are also, yeah, there's so many things that, um, are part of the, the artistic DNA that obviously plenty of non-artists share. I mean, uh, children of divorce don't all become artists, but, uh, it might not hurt. <laughs> it might be, <laughs> might be part of the journey. Um, you know, both my parents were frustrated, uh, not encouraged creators themselves. You know, they never got any, I will say this, you know, for all my dad's kind of chagrin with, with my subject matter, he was never chagrined by my, by my, uh, doing art. Let me turn off my mail so that I don't get those chimes going uh, during the recording. Um, but yeah, he he took kind of offense at, not offense, offense is the wrong word. Like I say, it was just more like, ugh, there was a lot of, why do you waste your talent with such ugliness? That was mm. a big one. Hmm. Uh, and you know, looking back, I don't have a good argument for why other than, I don't know, again, that angry, a lot of anger, a lot of being attracted to things that are repellent, you know, um, but never discouraged, you know, I think he would have preferred I broaden my horizons a bit. Well, there, you know, it's funny because you mentioned the wacky packs in your book. And sure. like, like those things were like huge in the, you know, in the early seventies, that was like a, like model kits and wacky packs were just like everywhere. And at least in my, my perspective of life. And I don't know whether it is because, I mean, we were both very young at that point, but you know, the, the Vietnam war was under underway and it was, you know, a, a sort of this painful, you know, blemish on the, the country at the moment. And I don't like, I think a lot of that stuff was culturally reflected in these types of counterculture elements, what from cartoons, you know, you know, including Matt and, and, uh, the lampoon. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like you say, at a really early age, you don't necessarily understand the what, but you understand how it's affecting what's around you. And so, you know, there were even growing up in a place as, you know, relatively conservative, middle of the road is Rigo Park, Queens, Rigo Park, Queens being adjacent to Forest Hills, Queens, people, most people haven't heard of Rigo Park, but they have heard of Forest Hills because of the tennis stadium. Um, you know, Rigo Park, also home of Art Spiegelman. Um 
But, you know, there were counterculture bookstores in those days, even in that kind of neighborhood. And, you know, hippie type stores. And so you'd go in and everywhere were anti-war posters, you know, and uh, certainly lots of anti-Richard Nixon uh, propaganda. Good propaganda, but still propaganda. And, you know, it, it imprints. I mean, I've, you know, there are drawings in my uh, collection of stuff from when I was a kid. I have drawings of Nixon. I was doing mm-hmm. little caricatures of Nixon when I was, you know, eight years old, probably eight or nine years old. And uh, so, yeah, they're all things that definitely shape a worldview. And, and again, you know, the kind of things that motivate your pen or pencil or crayon on paper, um, even before you really understand why. Yeah, I, that's a, I mean, that's a really great point because like, I was thinking like how, like what, you know, like what are the touchstones and touch points that like for you that made these sort of pathways toward where you went, you know, with your career career as it was when you were young. I mean, we don't really know what the career is. We just doing the thing. Um, I know I can point out like three or four things that I know were like, Oh, like this is the inevitable direction I'm going to head because of these things. Um, like, because like, I, I mean, you know, like mad magazine obviously was a huge influence on you. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember being on a summer vacation and I don't know, back in the seventies, you would, you could go to tag sales and buy a box of comic books for like a dollar, you know, because they were just getting rid of the comic books that their kids had left behind. And um, I ended up buying like a box full of sixties mad magazines, like from, you know, around 64. Uh, And I spent like a whole summer reading those things like back and forth over and over again. But I didn't pursue that. You know, there were other things that I, you know, but didn't it didn't make that complete connection to me. Um, like what were like what were the things? Because I think I already I'd already been hit in the head like with I don't know, maybe Star Wars at that point or something. You know, and that sort of filled up a huge space in the in the brain. It's funny, yeah. Because for for me, before I mean, Star Wars Star Wars came out at the right time because I was 12 when it came out but for me Logan's run was was everything oh, for the longest time. It was so cool. It was so cool. <laughs> and you know, try to tell someone once upon a time Logan's run was the coolest thing with everyone walking around in their primary mm-hmm. colored little little onesie dresses and stuff and you know, in a shopping mall and it's like, mm. but once upon a time that was pretty badass, especially the um oh god, how could I forget what they called the the hunters? in that but at any rate i mean it was runners and sandmen the sandmen yes, the sandmen once right. once upon a time you were a sandman before neil gaiman came along anyway regardless um but uh yeah the early stuff it's too much of a of a in a way it's too much of a melange i think the thing is i you know i've always been sort of an outlier in that comic books themselves were not that important to my choosing my career path, at least until a certain age. Um, 
because I didn't like superheroes and that's pretty much what everything was. And I didn't like romance comics and, you know, the humor comics mostly were pitched a little too young, even when I was a kid, like things like all the, the Harvey comics, Casper and all that, even when I was really little, it was like, this is not for me. So yeah, mad was, and it's also funny because mad was one of those early things I was almost scared of because the drawing was a little grotesque and, you know, and the first person I knew that read mad was my babysitter's daughter, who was only a couple of years older. But again, when you're very young, a couple of years make a difference. And she read mad and I would kind of look at it and it was like, Ooh, that's interesting. But I don't know. I don't think I'm big enough for that. Uh, And I remember like looking through an early one. It was it might have been a super special. All I remember is that. it, It kind of, in a way, let me know this is not for you, because occasionally they would use photography. You know, it wasn't always illustrated. And they did, I think, a TV guide parody or something that they bound in that was like the size of TV guide. And I remember there was a photo of Hitler. Of course it was an actor just dressed as Hitler because he was making a stupid face. But I thought, I know who Hitler is. This is definitely too old for me. And I just kind of put it right back down. You know, it took a while to kind of, I mean, it sounds so, you know, I was, I was also a fairly, sorry, I have a scratchy voice today. It's also, it's morning. I haven't had my coffee yet. Um, but I was also a fairly um, squeamish kid. Okay. So anything with blood was kind of no fly for me. My dad, I remember again, I keep talking about my dad, but my dad at a certain point said, boy, you sure, sure changed your spots. Because it was like, I went from like, no, no, suddenly I'm like drawing the most grotesque gore that ever, you know, and he's, but it's like, yeah, there again, switches get clicked. But when plop came along, this is all a long roundabout way of saying when plop debuted, it was suddenly like, oh, this is a comic book for me. Yeah. Because it was humor. And it was kind of gross and it was stupid, but also clever. And it had, you know, I mean, again, I was just learning who people were, but Basil Wolverton and Wallace Wood and, you know, Bernie Wrightson and all these people were doing stuff in plop. And it was very instantly on board with that. That debuted at just the right time. I think I was nine when it debuted. And, but the comics that I read were the stuff my dad had in his apartment and he was not a comic book guy, but he had humor paperbacks. So, you know, it's, I mean, it's all the, the, the basic stuff. And then a couple that are a little weird for a kid to be into because he had peanuts instantly gravitated to peanuts. Pogo still think Pogo is one of the all time masterpieces. But he also had um, Lil Abner, okay, Jules Pfeiffer, 
and Gay and Wilson. And those really became, that was, those were the building blocks for me. So like even at a young age, I was looking at Jules Pfeiffer way before I got the jokes. Uh, I was looking at Pfeiffer probably from about the age of four or five on. And there was something about his very natural spidery line. You know, there it was so unstructured in a way, like everything else had a kind of look where you understood the building blocks of it. Mm-hmm. But Pfeiffer, you know, only years later did I learn of his technique of drawing with like wooden, like basically with wooden sticks, you know, just everything being very disposable. He didn't use pens. He would dip in like skewers, like basically right. wooden barbecue skewers or things like that. It's like, okay, that's why his stuff looks like the way it looks. It looks and so almost odd. like unreproducible in a sense, you know, like an artist who's making their own tools, not only is their hand eye going to be different, the tool is so different that it's just a, it's just them. Yeah. But it, but his work, once I did start reading it, it opened up that part of my brain where it was like, oh, you can talk about real stuff. Mm-hmm. You can talk about, it doesn't just have to be a joke. I mean, a joke is good, but you can, like he had people monologuing, you know, that was, that was, which was revolutionary. And so that was a big deal uh, for me in seeing that. And then the other, maybe one of the most important books in my entire development was Gay and Wilson's book Nuts, okay, which was the strip that he did for Lampoon. But, you know, they, they put out a paperback collecting a chunk of it. And when I saw that book and was reading, again, these strips about being a kid, that didn't portray it as fun. <laughs> they portrayed <laughs> all the horrors of childhood. Uh, I just, okay, now I really am beginning to understand my path. <laughs> I, you know, and again, it, there's this, I'm not going to get there for a while, but I kind of have a clearer view of what I can do. And then heavy metal magazine debuted and then it was all over. It was like, <laughs> okay, now, I, now I'm going to work yeah. with these yeah. these disparate uh, stimuli. Pfeiffer, <laughs> Wilson, heavy metal. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, but they're, but they're all but they're all these sort of like fantastical ways of telling. It, it is sort of, I guess you know, interesting or real stories as possible. Like if you if you can look at those like in an abstract. Well, they're all so deeply personal. I think that was another thing that didn't work for me about a lot of comics is in a way they did feel like product to me. Sure. Even as a kid, I was like, "Mm, you know, not, not for me. It's fine. Not for me. Um, but when I started reading work that you could really feel the personality of the artist and what was important to the creator and all that, that resonated on a very deep level for me. And that's why Peanuts also resonated because, you know, I mean, let's face it, Charles Schultz made a very good career of channeling 
a lot of childhood pain mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, into his work. Uh, it's why the kids worked for me and, and Snoopy didn't so much. Yeah. Well, it's funny. There's a, I think, I think what might be the connective tissue is the point of view. Like those, all those things that you're, you're citing all have a point of view. The the creators are making things with a point of view and it's not a question of facility because the people who are writing and telling stories for, you know, Marvel or DC, that's not in question. Like they can do all that stuff, but, Mm -hmm. but there's very little point of view in, in the engagement factor because you have to be invested as a reader into the sort of the history of the characters to be able to extract something from that because it's not the sort of like, here's what happened to me, or here's a, here's a telling of a story of these people and it happened. And no, it's the character that we ultimately know that the character will triumph. And that's the, you know, and that little, that if you're, if you can't suspend that bit of, you know, fantasy or the, the reality and make it a fantasy, it's never going to work. You're just going to go, eh, no interest. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, and that's the thing. And, and, you know, there's a, there's that commonality of, you know, young person, pencil in hand, hyper-focused on a drawing. Like there's this, you're all in into whatever that thing is. And I think when you look at a Gay and Wilson piece, that's still, that's still happening in that person as an adult when they're creating that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, you know, they're very in touch with, with that stuff. Um, yeah. And I'm, you know, I say all this, it took me a long time to get comfortable consciously sharing at a certain level in my work. I think subconsciously I was sharing way more than I probably was aware of. Oh, but you were so clever and nobody ever caught on. Well, including me. Um, but I don't think it was even clever. There was a certain, again, there, you know, you reveal things through your work, whether intended or not, unless you're, you know, just someone who's absolutely robotic and it's like, I am going to just, plow through this work and you know it's going and even there you're probably revealing a lot about yourself too but like looking at a lot of this the the student work again (laughs) that stuff is so easy to read you know (laughs) you don't need to be a a particularly astute person to see what what a teenager is going through when they're pouring out their creative output on paper it's like okay this is a very sexually frustrated person this is a very (laughs) angry person who feels helpless in his own skin this is someone who definitely does not feel like he has agency and can take charge so he's going to have his characters uh enact horrible acts of vengeance and violence i mean basically you know there's there's all these things where you're you're working through stuff and you think, well, it's not me. That's this character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all it takes is an older person, a parent or whatever to look and just say, yikes. <laughs> okay. And then you get all embarrassed and you put it in a drawer and you don't finish it. 
Yeah. But, it, it, and I and I agree. Listen, it, it, I mean, I don't. It's taken me a very long time to express my personal meanness in a thing that I do because I stood behind the idea of making product for a long time. You know, that was it. I'm just I'm I'm using the the skill sets that you know I've had or and or developed to do this do the work and that's fine um and it's a great challenge um but it's probably a bit safer maybe in some way to do it when you're you know 50 years old and you can kind of think about it and have a little bit more sort of of a studied approach to it but when you're young it's it it can be pretty you know harrowing to just kind of express something, you know, like, cause like, listen, we all wrote the bad poetry at one point or another in our life. And that never, that was never seen by another person. And too bad. This is an audio podcast. That was a great face, Bob. Um, and, <laughs> was, was that the face of, I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but like it, but that's, but that clearly, you know, it's like you said, it sneaks out until it becomes an intention. And, do you do you have a like a moment like can you think of like oh this is when I first tried it or you know and was it terrifying or what? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I probably still am a bit guarded in my work. You know, this is again, this is all <clears throat> building blocks towards something. Um, you know, this is where caging things with humor or, you know, there are all these things you do to kind of mitigate just how real your realness is going to be. And so, you know, I uh, I still haven't really gotten there. Like Minimum Wage was a comic series. I can't assume everyone listening knows what I've done, but I did a a comic book series for a number of years, started in the mid nineties, did 10 issues of it for Fantagraphics, plus a uh, sort of a pilot episode graphic novel to start it. And it, it, uh, and then it hibernated and then I brought it back uh, for image a bunch of years later. But it was the closest I'd ever gotten to doing like something real and honest and autobiographical. And it's pretty close. But the thing is when, when there's also tons of omissions, uh, I won't call them sins of omission because I think they were smart. You know, there's certain things and you, you conflate certain things and you combine certain things and you leave out certain things and you shift your chronology a bit because, well, that thing that happened to me would work better here. All of sure. that starts to make it less and less honest. So it has, it has, uh, to use Stephen Colbert's word, truthiness. You know, there's, it's definitely um, more than truth adjacent because there was a lot of stuff in it that was very uh, candid and maybe too candid. Um but even there, it's, and this also, it's, uh, again, one of the things of putting together a career overview book and looking at everything. Obviously, there's a lot of narcissism in 
there's narcissism in putting out work publicly, period. You, you know, really, once it leaves your hands, and this is, again, it's that whole art and commerce thing, once the art that you were slaving over for little or no money leaves your hands, it does become product, even even if it is very artistic and very pure and so forth. Suddenly, it's a thing on a shelf that people can buy. So that, by definition, is product. So how much do you want to, you know, bear your soul to a public? Well, there are degrees. And so I kind of found my comfort level, at least for certain chunk of my life, you know, maybe, maybe as, as the grave begins to loom a little larger, you know, it'll, who knows if anyone's still reading books, I like to think that moment isn't coming too soon. You know, maybe there'll be something that's completely uh, unguarded, but, you know, for the time being, I think it's enough like some, the truth is some of the most autobiographical moments have been in genre stuff. You know, they're in the novels that I wrote. They're because especially my first novel, uh, which was a book called Bottom Feeder, you know, it's a vampire novel, but it's very internal. And so, you know, there's a lot of my thoughts in that character's head, you know, not every character. I mean, some people say every character you create is just a facet of you. Maybe that's true. I don't know if I agree with that. I think when you're writing, you know, you you can write things that are not you. You can write things that are observed as opposed to experienced, you know, especially if you're creating, I don't know, supervillains or whatever. It's, you're, you're not necessarily that. Uh, but, you know, there's probably a little to that. But the thing is, the kind of books that I write, it's probably truer because they're either... I've never been very good about covering my tracks. I've, I won't say I haven't been very smart about it, but I haven't been very, um, yeah. Cause I mean, basically anytime I base a character on somebody I know in real life, uh, in the case of minimum wage, most of them just looked like their real life counterparts. I only gave myself the luxury of, of hiding behind this blonde blue eyed avatar. <laughs> And, right. You know, it's like, well, that's not me. Clearly, that's not me. Look at him. He's blonde. He's blue eyes. It can't be me. Everyone's and looking at you sitting at the table like, well, at the con. Sh-? Yeah. So, but, you know, with the exception of a few characters in Minimum Wage uh, who didn't look anything like their real life counterparts, um, pretty much everyone was just, and, you know, by the way, and I cleared it all. It was like, you cool with me putting you in this comic? Yeah. yeah are you cool with me using this story, this embarrassing story that you shared with right. me or that we live together. And they're like, yeah, it's fine. So, you know, but not everyone, not everyone. Um, you know, the, the romantic interest in minimum wage was based on my first wife. And, you know, she and I were long apart at that point. But I wanted to do something real. I wanted to do something, oh, what's something I've experienced? And I can kind of do an arc where it has a beginning, middle, and an end. And, um, you know, I never reached out to her and said, hey, by the way, you okay with me doing a fictionalized version of you in a comic? 
And, you know, for years I wondered, did she ever see it? And I found she definitely saw it. And she apparently marched into a comic shop once and declared herself my muse. So <laughs> make of that what you will. Okay. There are pitfalls, you know, there, you know, hey, at least she took it in stride. Um, sure. She didn't have a shotgun in her hand, so I guess it's a win, right? Yeah. So, you know, but I think that was a very convoluted and, and rambling answer, possibly to your question. <laughs> I lose the thread. <laughs> well, my, I, I hope I can keep keep grasp of the threads and the in the frayed ends here. But the um, I think that the use of an avatar is that sort of that and you know asking your friends it's kind of a dragnet approach you know you sort of change the names to protect the innocent kind of approach to making you know making these stories come together um because the intention isn't to burn you know at that point like i think when you're maybe if you're a college bob might want to burn but you know adult adult er bob is trying to tell something greater rather than just get it out and uh get them that's a guess. Yeah. I, yeah, I certainly make no promises that I have not been an asshole to people, but it's less intentional than it used to be. <laughs> um, I assume I can use off color language on this podcast. I'm, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'm behaving. I'm being a good boy, uh, <laughs> keeping it down to a bare minimum, but uh, occasionally anyway, but yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think you can get through life without this is an interesting thing and to put it in very comic book terms um you're always going to become somebody else's villain at some point um you know you want to it's the hero's journey for you Mm -hmm. but there's always going to be the byproducts of some of your journey are either hurting people Sometimes, you know, hopefully unintentionally, but uh, it happens. And so, yeah, in your work, you can at least be a bit more judicious about how you dole out that kind of misbehavior. You know, I've based characters on people where, you know, they had very outsized uh, <laughs> quirks or or things where it was like well you know they always say you're a writer write what you know and then you write it and then you think "Ooh, that person never reads this they're gonna know that that's them it's too specific you know it's like you wrote something very specific there yes it's not their name and then you can absorb well did the did the quote unquote giant scare quotes uh, work of art merit possibly hurting somebody or, you know, was that your best choice? Could right. you have disguised it better or, or not? Um, you know, I, I, yeah, that's, that's a con- kind of a constant battle, especially when you do more, real life type stories. I mean, or at least your approach to genre is very grounded when you're doing stuff where you want it to really feel grounded. The things that ground you 
are the people in your life or the experiences you've had. And yeah. How do you go? Like, how do you, how do you process that when you're in, you know, the time of creating the piece? So if you're writing out the thing and you get the idea and you're like this, 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 Oh, this could use this, but like, do you seek out that, and engage with that memory and those events with the people to try to help build this narrative or do you or or do you are you adverse to it and then have to kind of force yourself to do it like what is the natural inclination i don't think yeah there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to that because i think it really it's very kind of case by case um I mean, I wrestle with stuff all the time, maybe not, you know, I don't get to the pin, but the wrestling's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that's, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, Ums are great for, for podcasting. Everybody loves little bits of dead air. Let's listen to somebody think, but I don't, it's like, I don't want to be glib either. I don't really have a good answer for that because I think it's, it's, it's always uh, a process of when, when, when you're mining your own life, when you're mining your own experience, in my case, truth is the first thing is does this make a good story? Is this an accessible story? Because I don't put the audience first, but I do always contemplate the audience. Okay. Because I'm not working in a vacuum, or at least I'm trying not to work in a vacuum. I am trying to do work that will eventually be read by people you know that's where maybe my work is a little less pure there is contemplation there is consideration that's a better word consideration of the audience um so because there are also times where it's like well that's a great story but does it organically work within what I'm trying to do? Or am I going to crowbar it in there just because I like that story? Yeah. And that's where, you know, the, the classic kill your darlings thing comes in because there've definitely been times where I have set and I write it and it's good. And then I read it in the context of everything around it and say, all right, get rid of it. I I wrote it. I got it out of my system. Get rid of it. Um, And, you know, maybe (laughs) some friend or acquaintance in my past was spared (laughs) picking up a book and saying, what the, wait a minute. (laughs) Why is this story in this book? So uh, occasionally some bullets are dodged. Um, through being a little bit more prudent. Well, how do you like, so, I mean, 
I mean, you're, you're saying that the, in the, you're as a process and you're, you know, you're going through it, you know, on revisions and how you work your way through something. When those times come, when you look at something and you go, well, boy, this might be too much. Now let's say it fits within the, the, the story. It fits. There's no crowbarring necessary. Like it fits in the story. It, it's right. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you manage and walk it? Like, do you say, okay, I need to walk this back some, you know, maybe I'm not going to deliver the greatest, you know, punch to the nose of the reader, but I, I'm taking, you know, into account the person who this was based off of. I'm just really super curious about like how you would uh, handle that. Uh, yeah, probably not as much as I should have. I mean, by the way, it's not like there's this... <laughs> painting a picture of me just leaving a, a path of destruction <laughs> behind me right. you mean you're dropping you're dropping uh, uh plaster blocks all over the place <laughs> yeah it's really not that i mean if, if anything it's really only a couple of people along you know the uh, well more than a couple but less than a handful let's put it that way of people who may or may not have been super keen to have uh themselves fictionalized and dressed up in other clothes and all that kind of thing. But, and you know, this is the other thing. This is a consequence I've learned kind of recently is, you know, relationships change too. So sometimes people you've portrayed that you were really tight with, you end up yeah, going your separate ways at a certain point. And then you look at the work and then it's just sort of a a thorn in your side because you're like, oh, God. And it's not even because it's not good work or anything like that. It's just like, well, that's somebody I don't have that kind of relationship with anymore. So now it feels kind of sad to look at this work, you know, even uh-huh. if it's funny work. So all I'll say <laughs> is it's a minefield when you do use your own life. For, you know, it goes from mining your life. One, let's, oh boy, here I'm being super clever. You're mining your life using the word mine in one way, and then it becomes mines in a very different way. Um, And that's something I also haven't always taken into consideration because when you're doing things or living things, they feel like forever. Like, oh, this is never going to change. Mm-hmm. And the you know the nature of life is change, so uh, yeah. It's, I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking to me. Yeah, it's very precarious. No, um, I, I I had that exact I had that exact same thing happen to me uh, recently in the terms of a character that I've put a lot of time and energy into, and I don't have a relationship with this person, and it's really really tough. Like I I'm like, do I have to? go in and dig something out or how, like, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to approach it. Or do I just say, I have to, I have to feel that discomfort and in, with engagement with this character moving forward as the creator, but not as not, not what goes on paper. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, that is, that is case by case. I mean, you know, I did a book, um, a number of years ago called uh, From the Ashes, a book I'm very proud of. 
there's been interest, you know, a couple of times of putting that book back in print. And I have to say no, because, you know, the book was a, uh, I called it a speculative memoir, but it was about my, my uh, wife and I in post-apocalyptic New York. Well, I'm divorced right. now. That marriage yeah. is over. And, yeah. you know, it was a very long marriage. And when I did it, I thought, well, this is forever, you know? Right. This is, a, this is a time capsule to our... Yeah. And there's a case where it's like, well, that book to me is, you know, it was done. It was definitely done with love. Um, but it, it would not feel right to put it out. And there's a case where, well, there is another person involved and I don't think she would want that book out there. So that book is a dead book. You know, certain books become dead books. And that's something else you don't necessarily anticipate. No. Where you do something, I mean, a book feels, well, a book is forever. Surely a book is forever. Well, it isn't. It is and it isn't. It can be two yeah. things at the same time. So, uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. Well, this has actually helped me frame it because I really kind of think I I have to honor the intention of what I had created and also recognize that the characterization is from a period in time it's not from now it's not from 10 years from now it was a it's an encapsulation of a certain period in time and that's it so it's not a not a commentary on anything else and it's not even a commentary but it's not even a reflection of anything else but one moment so i think i can live with that you're talking about your uh, your prose writing and in your first novel, and you were saying how you were prosecuting sort of like personal stuff, you know, in, in a lot of stuff in that in that work. Mm. But question to you is, was your point of view in that story telling first person or third person? Oh, it was first, first person. Okay, so that it makes... First, that... first person present tense, which was an interesting challenge, but that's a whole other conversation. For sure. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But that, but that does, I think that opens that doorway into that, you know, telling those, those chunks of your life, it makes it a lot easier in, in many ways. Um, or at least the avenue of it is right there. You can just pipe it right in. Yeah. Um, maybe, I mean, it definitely in my case did because it really was, was, I mean, the DNA of that book certainly was, you know, well, what if I was a vampire? I mean, let's be honest, you know, and then it was like, okay, I don't want to make it me, but I'm certainly going to use me as the um, armature to build this character on, Um, you know, and again, it's interesting. I'm going to jump to my second novel for a moment, just... One of the things that's part of my creative disposition is always wanting to make whatever I've done better. And so every time a book gets a second printing, I lucas it. I'm completely sympathetic to Uncle George and his, you know, uh-huh. quixotic uh attempt to make everything better um 
he doesn't get to do that anymore, but you know, I'm still looking forward to at ats and so forth being in a director's cut of American graffiti someday. I live in hope. Um, but you know, I, I famous is the wrong word. Infamous is too strong, but you know, I've, every edition of minimum wage is different than a previous one. I go in and I redraw and I blah, 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 blah. Some people think it's horrible and why are you ruining it? Other people don't notice, whatever. It's, it's all, again, it's, it's for me. But I did that with my second novel. You know, so I, I wouldn't touch my first novel. Honestly, I think it's, it's the time capsule I want it to be. But the second novel I wrote... Well, I I won't go off on on too long a tangent about that. The first draft was just way too dark, way too dark. It was literally too dark to be published. Um, And, you know, a friend of mine who was a novelist after I'd been rejected a few times, you know, I gave it to him to read and he said, yeah, this this book's unpublishable. And I, I was like, wow, that's strong. Why? And on a storytelling note, he was right. He's like, well, there's really no arc to it. He says it's, it starts miserable. It ends miserable and it's miserable all the way through. And he said, and it's very, very, very claustrophobic. It's like, okay, well I can work with that. And then, you know, it started building out from there, sold it, but it was still very dark. But I wrote it before that book came out in 2010 originally. And I wrote it before I'd experienced certain things in real life in a really deep, meaningful way. Okay. When the opportunity came to put out a new edition of it uh, in 2021, I thought, well, let me, let me reread it. And I reread it. And having experienced loss in certain ways that I hadn't, it's that whole thing again of observed versus experienced. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time 2021 had rolled along, both I had lost both my parents at that by that point. Many friends, unfortunately, uh, have also, in pet terms, gone across the Rainbow Bridge. You know, there's things where when you write it and haven't really felt grief, like that kind of grief. You're like, I can go in and rewrite a little because it is a book very steeped in loss. I mean, it's, you know, that one. Okay. In macro, it's a zombie book. Fine. But it's a very intimate one. It's, you know, it's almost, it could pretty much be done as a play. It's very kind of, that was where some of the claustrophobia comment came. It got opened out a bit from the whole point being there uh over the course of of my creative life i also i think anger has ebbed empathy has increased mm-hmm. i think that's a good thing i think it's a healthy thing you know it may be in a less <clears throat> in a less healthy way i look at kind of my life in a very bifurcated way because for my entire life up until 2017 <clears throat> I was a New York guy 
I lived New York City my whole life. 20, late 2017, I moved to California. It's huge. To rebuild and to do a lot of reflecting and kind of, you know, try to uh, fix some stuff. And so that's, again, looking at a lot of what preceded that move. Well, anger was really very big part of who I was. Um, and so, you know, you can write dark without it being so fucking angry. It's, you know, you can, right. you can have more humanity in your work and it's not selling out or going soft or any of the things maybe younger, less experienced, more whatever, you know, there it's, some could argue against it, but, uh, you know, and, and yeah, you know, you can, to talk about what we were just talking about, you can be more judicious in, if you're mining your own life for people in particular how how do i how do i work this in in a way that does take into account that other person (laughs) so even if it's a person i don't like even if it's a person this or that or the other thing it's uh because eventually it is going to eventually it's going to rear its head that maybe you're not as comfortable with it as you once were, you know, and knowing that maybe it did hurt somebody else or hurt their feelings or this or that, you know, if you, if you can sail through life with, I don't give a shit. Well, okay. Okay. For you. Um, your work's probably going to be a bit superficial if that's how you do get through life. Yeah. You know, listening to you say that makes me recognize that you can't create something, you know, on, on a, you know, on a writing side without drawing things into, you know, your experiences and into them. That's just the nature of writing. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, even, even if you're writing science fiction, unless it's populated by drones, like you're not, you know, like there are going to be people and the people are going to be reflections and part, part, you know, part and parcel of what you've experienced in life with other people. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a big challenge, you know, for all, for all of us and how we, how we put that in, into the work, you know, and to make it real, you know, drawing upon that, you know, whatever level of empathy you have in your life and how do you, how do you translate that into, you know, you're talking the sense of loss, you know, like this is, you know, we write, we write with assumptions when we're young and then we write with reflection, you know, when we're older because we've gone through these things and that's the, the huge change that happens in in the works that we, we hope that happen in our work. Yeah. Well, that's why, you know, I love sci-fi as a genre, but I don't really, you know, whether it's at this point cliche, especially for people of a certain age and so forth and so on, you know, but that's why Philip K. Dick is my favorite. 
is nobody, nobody brought their own life into their fantastical worlds more than him. He was just a yeah. walking open wound. You know, it's for, for good or for ill. When I started reading, you know, because I came to it like so many people, I saw Blade Runner and I was like, whoa, this is amazing. I now need to read this guy's work. And then I read the book it was based on and thought, well, that's not like the movie, but the book's amazing. And now I'm going to read more. And the more I read, the more it was like, yeah, this is how you do it. Because his people were so flawed and so fragile. And so it was like everything that makes a literary novel, quote unquote, you know, so-called serious literature, uh, more important or whatever. It was all there in Phil Dick, you know, because he was obviously, if you know anything about the man, he was a frustrated writer of literary novels. He wanted to write literary novels. He did write literary novels. His his agent uh, discouraged him from writing them. He was like, nobody wants to read this. There's These are a dime a dozen. Keep churning out sci-fi. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. But his sci-fi was such a reflection of of all the turmoil and all the people in his life, mm-hmm. sometimes more obvious than other times. But yeah, well, it's it's no surprise that so much of his work has been adapted. But what is surprising is how they miss that humanity. Well, okay, but that's that that <laughs> might be just that just might be the fact that the people who, that he didn't write that stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, as great as the Lord of the Rings films were as an adaption, they're nothing like the books in the terms of like the quality of how you feel about them. Um, you know, I mean, you know, this is no big surprise unless it is. And then I'm very sorry for you, but the book's always better. Um, but like, you know, Dick's stories, the the core conceit of his stories typically are just so brilliant. And then you can fold in the fact that he also can write these characters in, the, in these stories that have such a wonderful and terrible quality to them that you you are compelled to keep going every page with them. Yeah, well, this is why sometimes I wish that there was a lottery system in the movie industry where people, certain directors would have to get pulled out of their comfort zones and make a movie that's not their genre. Because it's like, I would like to see Alexander Payne make a Philip K. Dick movie. It's like, that's a guy who will get it. Like, there's somebody who (laughs) who will absolutely, let's have Paul Giamatti as the star of a Philip oh, yeah. K. Dick movie, and then we're going to get the movie that I've been waiting for, you know, not that I don't enjoy the others, but it's like, can I please get one where we get the actual sense of what the books were like, you know, and not just the broad strokes of the story. The story's fine, but let's get the intimacy. Let's get the internalness. Let's get so much of that stuff. And that's going to require a different kind of director, you know? So, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I mean, I mean, how good was the holdovers? I mean, it, it was. Just, I still haven't seen that one yet. I still haven't seen look, it. Look, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's really good. Work, so <clears throat> it's really good. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, I'm sure it yeah. is. But yeah, don't we want the guy who made about Schmidt to do, you know, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch or something like that, you sure. know? Yeah. Um. Anyway, 
uh, it's now become Dick Chat. Welcome to Dick Chat. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, uh, now we're like a lot of other podcasts, I would guess, huh? Yeah, um, probably. <laughs> but how, like, what is your, what's your, I mean, do you have a different process between writing prose and writing comics? A little bit. In that, I am very aware of my strengths and my limitations as an artist. And so, for quote unquote more serious stuff, I'm better suited as a writer. I just don't think okay. my art style would really lend itself to something super serious. Um, and if it did, I wouldn't want to draw it because it would be a drag for me. Um, in a way, drawing for me is kind of an escape from how serious life is. That's why I tend to do humor. Um, there are definitely stories I still want to tell, but only as a writer, including comic stuff. There's things, there's things I would like to write as scripts that other artists would be much better at than me. Because I know for me, the struggle, even if I could get it down on paper, the struggle would be so unpleasant that I think it would infect the work. Hmm. Um, so, but in terms of the actual crafting of the story, they're pretty similar. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, I've still, you know, still have a lot of stories left that I want to tell. Um, I probably won't get to most of them, you know, life is short. Uh, and as, you know, as the big six O looms, you know, that's, that's, this is a big year for me. <laughs> um, even if milestones are, are arbitrary and societally mm -hmm. imposed, <clears throat> even though my voice sounds like absolute hell today, uh, um, you know, 60 is just a number. It's the classic, I don't feel 60. But, but I'm also not the other side of that cliche coin where people say, I still feel like a kid. I don't. <laughs> I definitely don't. There's a lot of fucked up road behind me that yeah. lets me know that I've lived a life so far. Um, but, you know, it's a weird thing to it's because it's like I'm definitely not young. But I'm not old. It's it's and middle age doesn't sound right either. I'm not in the middle. I'm not going to be 120. Nope. I don't want to be 120. It's a funny term, middle age. You know, it's there needs to yeah. kind of be a new term for when you're when you're older than than uh, young and and yet not quite old. And middle doesn't really cut it. You would think with all the writers out there, could somebody please? I'm not the one. I'm not up to the task. Sorry, but maybe we need new new nomenclature for when you reach certain points in your life, especially now, because I mean, that's the other thing. When you look at people now, they look so much better than people used to. You know, this is again, this is a surface thing, but you watch movies from, you know, basically from the 70s going back. And you're like, 
you'll look at your phone like, how old is this person? Jesus Christ, they're 35? They look like they're 80. This is like every movie I have with my wife. We're sitting watching it and I'm like, I'm four years older than this guy when he did this movie. And my wife would be like, fuck you that's not true i'm like absolutely it's so weird yeah i'm I'm part of a movie night group and i'll tell you you know we're pretty much all about you know the same age within a you know 10 years um and invariably as we're watching sometimes an older movie some corner of the room will say he's 35 and we're like what <laughs> it's like she's 42 what it's like they just look horrible everyone was just comprised of cigarettes and booze in those days well it's do you i mean it, it, travel back with me to <clears throat> to our youth do you remember looking first off you know friends who had older siblings you know the who were like i mean like you know older yeah proper they, older. they all looked they all looked adult like they were like adults. I'm like, I'm in sixth grade and these people look like complete and utter adults. I remember looking at like my sister's like your yearbooks. You know, I have sisters who are like eight and 10 years older. Mm. <laughs> like, like they all have mustaches. Like yeah. it was just, it was, it, it was a very different thing. They all looked like they were grownups comparatively. Yeah. Yeah. I never, <clears throat> I never had siblings, so I didn't experience that on either end of the uh, equation. But, but yeah, I definitely had some friends who is like, "How old is your brother?" <laughs> right? Like, like who? Thirteen. Who like Eighteen. Oh, that's my brother. It's like I don't know. <laughs> right? There's some weird man in the other room. Oh, that's my brother. Yeah, who is the dude in his underpants in the other room? Tell him to put his pants on. Yeah, yeah, that's my older brother. I hate him. Always in very but he'll punch me if I say anything. So yeah, so yeah, it's and I and I wonder, you know, do the you know do kids ten years who were ten years younger than us look at us and go, my God, look how old they are? Maybe I do know that I looked because partly because I was so small, I always looked younger than than what whatever grade I was in up until you know it's not like I had a giant growth spurt I mean I tapped out at five eight but I was glad to get to five eight you know for a while there I thought oh my god I'm just gonna be the uh can't use this word anymore but everyone in context in context of the era everyone's hey midget you know it's like right you know right you can reflect the pejorative being used on you I think I think that's legitimate still I, yeah, maybe yeah. <laughs> the rules keep changing, but I try to be I limber. I don't want to right. be that guy who's, Hey, I don't know what to call anyone anymore. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I pray we pray we never, never do. Um, so how do you like, so like for me, I'm having written enough prose. I got to the point where I was never precious i've not i'm not precious at all with what i'm writing especially when it comes to sharing it with people and because that was that i've learned was the fastest way to get to an actual interesting and truthful truthiness um piece of work on paper and do i mean because and i but in my experience lots of comic book writing people typically like hold their cards a little closer to their chest. So 
do, are you, do you have like some close, close people that you keep sharing your work with as you develop it? Or do you work in your laboratory of fingermanness and then release it at a point? Yeah, I tend to, I tend to work without showing as I work. Um, Some of that comes from a couple of life lessons I got from either people who I observed or an early mentor. There was a cartoonist. The first uh, comic book professional that I became friends with uh, was the late Howard Cruz. Howard Cruz um, was the friend of a co-worker of my father. And my dad, you know, would mention, eh, my kid wants to be a cartoonist. <laughs> I'm sure grumbling. <laughs> and so the art, my, my dad was the managing editor of the company magazine at Western Electric Bell Labs. They had a magazine called We. I used to try to impress some of my friends by telling telling them my dad was the editor of We magazine. <laughs> so it was also a men's magazine. O-U-I, We. Oh, wow. That, and then I would, because I could never, never live live in the lie, especially when they like, can you get us copies? I was like, well, no, it's, I'm kidding. It's just the company magazine. Oh, boring punch. Um... But anyway, the art director of the magazine was friends with Howard. And so, and it turned out Howard lived mere blocks away from my dad's apartment. So uh, he was very kind, very generous with his time. Um, And one of the kind of lessons I picked up was don't talk about your work too much while you're doing it or don't talk about specifically like don't tell the story because then you've told the story and you lose some of your motivation to put it on paper because you've kind of gotten it out of your system. You've told the story. Right. So other than the broad strokes, that's always kind of the way I've been once I really got serious about telling especially long form stories. I mean, short form ones, I, I will do that because it's I want to make sure the punchline sticks the landing because and even there, usually I'll give the script. I'll say, hey, does this, you know, eight page or work or whatever? Um, my girlfriend, uh, Val, uh, it's she's a writer, so. And she's written comedies, you know, she's, she's, she's a writer director. She's, and, and actually, um, our coming together, uh, was great. That's a whole other thing. I'm not going to do meet cute nonsense on, on this, but suffice it to say, we share certain, um, in a way, creative motivation because she did a movie, she wrote and directed a movie called Love and Sex. Uh, with okay. John Favreau and Famke Janssen. And it's analogous to minimum wage. It's, you know, it's absolutely autobiographical, but it's also fictionalized and heightened for the sake of humor and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, um, 
so she's great to bounce things off of. She's a great writer herself and, and uh, her instincts are very good. So that's kind of different um, than a lot of the way I've, I've operated in terms of keeping things to myself over the years. Um, but yeah, so it's not like I, I don't tell people what I'm working on. It's not like, right. Shit, I don't want to talk about it. I I'll say, but I don't go into really much detail and I don't kind of preview the work to people really until it's done, but not so done that I can't go and fix things or, you know, take the note as they say. Um, but, you know, I had a friend years ago and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but he would tell me these elaborate stories like uh, this kind of, I'm not even going to say genre. I don't want to point any fingers at anyone, but I would be absolutely entranced. It was like, this sounds amazing. And he never did any of them. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm sure I wasn't the only one who was, you know, a receptor for him running it by. And I'm not saying you can be one or the other, but for me, it was sort of, it illustrated very well Howard's sure, his, his life lesson. No. And, and I think that's like, I think that also can swing both ways because you could, you could go out there and you say, Hey, I got this idea for a story. And you tell a story and someone goes like, I, I mean, I guess it's good. I mean, it sounds like, a, you know, I think it's a good start. And then you can go, Oh, I need to work on that. But if some people are like, oh, that's amazing. I can't wait for you to put that down. That might just be this huge barrier that gets thrown up between you and that finished piece of work by going, oh, boy, I, I don't know if I can I can make it as good as I just told it in that, you know, in that coffee shop or wherever the place is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think I'm more I'm definitely not someone who will share the story early. But I'll share the premise. Like, does this premise work? Yeah. And if someone says, yeah, it sounds like something you could work with. All right. I'll, you know, I'll tuck it away or I'll attack it right now. Um, plot and premise are obviously two very different things, too. I've, I've yeah. got tons of great premises that I never could figure out how to flesh out. It's like, yeah, it's a great premise. Wish I could do something with it. <laughs> I'm either not smart enough or, or not whatever enough, but it's like, okay, maybe someday. Uh, well, it's a chemical reaction, right? Like you can, ha you can ha walk around with that sort of inert premise. And then eventually that thing get that thing gets knocked on the table and that spills over and, you know, dumps on the premise. And then some, some catalyst happens. Yeah. Well, it's funny because in, in, the, the book I'm preparing that some business you're in, you know, I'm putting some unpublished stuff in there, actually a fair amount. Um, and there's a little sampler of pages of a story that I tried to start when I was just about 21. And I drew some pages and that's really before I had any disciplined writing habits. It was pretty much right page to page. Maybe I'll thumbnail a few pages, but I didn't. I had an idea in here, you know, I had a, an outline sort of, but rough. Right. 
And needless to say, those stories were always aborted probably five, six pages in where I was just like, and now I don't know what to do. Okay, put it aside. But the pages of this one story uh, that I shared one abortive attempt at and then another abortive attempt at, uh, I managed to flesh out a couple of years ago and wrote an incredibly detailed outline. And I would love to do it. And that's one of those projects that I'm hoping I'll be getting to. But, you know, there's something where it literally took decades to incubate, you know, and it's not that I was thinking about it very often. Occasionally, I'd think, oh, yeah, that might have been fun. And, and again, it was also this, you know, things that I, I fell in love with at the time, oh, I can't wait to draw so and so. And then at a certain point, I realized, oh, that's been jamming you up this whole time. Get rid of that. And then it was like pushing a boulder out of the way and the rest of the path suddenly revealed itself. It was like, oh, that one stupid thing that would have been fun to draw. That was the, that was the problem. That thing, that was the impediment. I, you know, all the time I'd thought this is, this, is the, this is the glue. It wasn't. It was, it was what was clogging up the pipe. So, you know, now hopefully I'll get to do this story at some point. That's one, by the way, that I might be more comfortable just writing for somebody else to illustrate or, you know, maybe do it as a novel or something like that. Um, But, yeah, the the writing process to me is, is weirdly more porous and opaque. Drawing, if anything, is a much more linear process you know you put literally linear you know you're putting (laughs) pencil or whatever on paper and it reveals itself but you have a blueprint you know what you're gonna do this is why in in a lot of ways i love drawing because i know i'm using a lot less of my brain it's i can listen to podcasts you know while i'm drawing i can i can do other stuff Uh to occupy my attention because I'm only using this much because it's really executing, you know, it's executing it hopefully well. It's trying to keep the line lively. It's all the things, but it's not thinking it's executing. The, the thinking comes in, in that when you're, when you're doing the layout and you're just figuring out what all the constructions that need to happen yeah. on the page and the panels, once you're done there, it's like I said, it's music and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't get to do that work most often. I, you know, my, my don't draw for a living. It's been decades, but I'm doing, you know, advertising um, keyframes right now. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like, you know, once a year kind of project for me that happens and I'm burning through podcasts. I'm having a great time. <laughs> so yeah, it's not, it's it's great because it does because it's this it is it, it's a linear process it's a reactionary process because you can see immediately when it's not working. Okay, wait that that I have to I have to back up here with an eraser and figure this part out. Okay, now that looks makes you know and on we go. So yeah, I wish it was more. I mean, I you know I wouldn't be looking at every single thing I ever drew, saying I wish I'd drawn this better or that better if it was right in the moment, because sometimes in the moment you think that looks good. And then you look at it later mm, and it's like, well, mm, sure. 
but anyway. But then again, the but your best work at twenty is not your is nothing compared to your best work at thirty. I mean, it's just you progress. Yeah, you sure. you hope so. I mean, but you know, you, right. I I look at the work I'm doing now, and and it's finally kind of beginning to look like how I'd hoped it would look. It's taken a while, you know. It's taken a while. It's yeah. not like I look at the work I did before and think junk. Um, but again. I, I can see, I mean, this is the thing. I've never had what you'd call a consistent style, even within the same book. Um, if I learn something better while I'm working on something that'll make the rest of it look better, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to keep repeating the thing that didn't look as good. So, you know, this is where I've always had an admiration for for those creators who really, it's like, it's almost like they're like a machine where they're so on model to use the animation term that's like wow you from frame one of the comic or panel one to panel 1000 that character looks exactly the same it's like how do you do it i have no idea how you do it none none yeah it's it's because it's all just it's you know you're you're growing hopefully you're you're evolving you're even if you don't want to be so kind and say growing and evolving, you're changing in real time. You know, it's, it's so when it gets put in a book, real time ceases to exist. It's now, (laughs) it's now an artifact. So if on page one, your character looks like this and on the final page, like skip ahead, it's like, whoa, it happens. It happens, but it's gradual. It's throughout the book. And we all change. So why wouldn't character change in the book, right? Yeah. I don't know. I've had there weird quirks over the years of things that change within a book. And I'm just like, I don't know why that happened, but it happened on a subconscious <laughs> level. Um, but I think it's why, cool. You know, we're we're not machines. No. No. We're, I mean, you know, we're, we're just, we're all, we're, you know, a sharpened piece of, bamboo skewer dipped in ink yeah squiggling yeah. on the page yep yeah if we're lucky if we're lucky so what was the what was the impetus for putting together that's some business you're in well again there's these milestones and i was thinking okay this is my 2024 is my 40th year i saw that it's funny because i've been thinking about doing this book for a while And then I saw that became like a meme among comic creators a few weeks ago. And I thought, God, I don't want to look like I'm jumping on a trend here. But everyone was suddenly saying, like, this is my 38th year. This is my 28th. Like, Wait a minute. Why is 2024 the year everyone's jumping on that bandwagon? Get the fuck off. This is my bandwagon. They're all, you know what it is? It's just that they're all psychically sensing what's about to come, Bob. Oh my God. Well, I hope so. I hope they're supportive of, of my, of my doing this then. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Just 40 sounded big to me and I'm not counting on getting to (laughs) fifties. You know, who knows? Everything is so, again, it's all so precarious. Uh, I like to think I'll get to a 50th and a 60th, but we don't know what print is going to be like in 10 years from now, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 40 just sounded, it's a good round number, you know, um, started when I was 19. So 
Well, and what, so what was your, what do you think? I mean, like what's, what's the biggest takeaway for you in, in, in making this? Like, I mean, was there something like, was there revelations? Was, what was the thing that you could say, Hey, wow, I didn't expect to feel this, think this or learn this. Well, I mean, I'm still working on the book. I'm, I think a hundred and hundred and eight pages into it. Okay. It's going to be a pretty big book. I mean, this is the stuff, uh, I guess I'm supposed to tease, but also not reveal too much at, you know, at minimum, it'll be 150 pages. Um, but yeah, going back over the course of a long career, you know, it's a long career. Um, On a on a purely technical level, it's interesting to look at the artwork as it does kind of evolve. Like the things that I gravitated towards um, years ago. I don't think this anecdote. Maybe this anecdote's in in the text. You can tell me. You say you you say you 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 read the uh, the preview. Um, but years ago, I was part of a group art show. I think I did put it in because it was definitely, it's something, you know, to, to borrow a, a, a catchphrase of a friend of mine, it was a raspberry tooth stuck in my wisdom tooth for many years. I won an award, quote unquote. I keep doing the quote unquote. Got to get over that. Um, but it was a very ironic award. Uh, they made up awards at this art show. Uh, and it was, I won most preciously overworked art and, you know, I laughed, I got my little statuette, but I thought, God, that's, that's rough. Because <laughs> like, that, you know, any good zinger lands because it's accurate. Nobody yeah. gets, you know, nobody thinks about that zinger if it was like, well, that's clearly inaccurate. So who cares? That one, that one landed hard. Um, you know, there was that, cause definitely one of those motivators of, you know, pr- probably my whole career was, I got something to prove. I have to prove mm. that I deserve to be in print. I have to prove that, you know, I deserve the attention of people. I, I, I need to, I mean, in a way, I guess it's a good motivation because it's like I want to earn. I want to earn what I've got, you know, even if even if the page rates insulting, whatever, it's like I never want anyone to feel like I didn't earn it. I earned every penny. Um, And so. You know, there are phases of my career where some of that. Wanting to earn it was working in ways that were clearly uncomfortable to me. It's like, cause like, well, I think this is how it should be done, you know? And it's, there was a time where like, if there was a curved line on my paper, it was only achieved through the use of a French curve. You know, it's like every, right. everything. Cause I was never a brush guy. It was always a pen guy. And, you know, for the first I don't know how many years, a lot of years, you know, I inked with technical pens, which have no flexibility. So to get line weight variation, 
it was always building up the line. And yeah. I can't do this line perfect curve over and over again. Well, I'll get my French curve and I'll do it. And, you know, the thing is you do all that and it's very constructed and I'm not looking at it saying, well, this doesn't hang together. It all hangs together. It's, you know, but there's no spontaneity. Spontaneity was, I, I think, in the grand scheme, the artists whose work I've always admired were the ones who had a snappy line, as they say, you know, <laughs> somebody like Jack Davis, snappy line, uh, Mort Trucker, snappy line. Then when you started looking at some of the Europeans, I mean, I, I one of the actually I didn't mention earlier, but one of the other comics that I looked at as a kid with great admiration and fascination was Tintin. You know, my mom started yeah, getting yeah. me the Tintin books and I was just like, wow, these are amazing. These are incredible stories. Talk about somebody who was always on model. Boy, oh boy, nobody tops Hergé. Hergé was the king of, of staying on model. But beautiful line, not snappy, beautiful. And then when I started seeing heavy metal and like when I first saw Mobius, of course, it was, you know, the cinematic thing of the, the clouds part, the sun shines. It was like, right. OK, this is it. This man's a genius because mm -hmm. his work was everything that I thought comics should be. It didn't feel fussy. And yet it was absolutely kind of perfect and beautiful mm -hmm. and rendered and there was all this stuff going on it was this alchemy of all these things happening where none of it felt like this is a guy who's sweating over every line and you know one of the great honors of my life was I got to visit Mobius in his home and you know got to basically he critiqued minimum wage when i was see he got to see it before you, you asked there you who, go. who got to see he it shared, before it was in print he's he shared with mobius he saw the first mobius stuff i mean he saw the first uh, minimum wage stuff uh before it was finished and mm -hmm. he critiqued it and i didn't really get his critique um not just because he was speaking in french we had a translator there um and I, looking back, I agreed with some of what he said and disagreed with some. He said the character Rob was too specific looking. He's too specific. And that's because he was looking at that the main character is the reader's avatar. So the, so it should be sort of a blank slate. It's like Jerry Seinfeld's not the most interesting character on Seinfeld. He's, he's right. ostensibly who the audience experiences the show through, as with many comedies. Mary Tyler Moore is not the funniest one. She's funny, but not the funniest, but she is who we experience everything through. I'm picking all these current references, you know, for the kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but to me, it was like, well, Rob is very specific, so he should look specific. But I, but it, I now understand what he was getting at. And in some cases that absolutely works. Your guy is the blank in a way. Um, so, but to go back to the question of like, what am I learning looking at this? It's like only now, like with really within the last, I'd say 15 years has, have I gotten comfortable enough with the way I work that there's a liveliness in the work 
Um, mm. cause it, it did take a while, you know, to get either more comfortable with, with materials, to find the materials that didn't exist then, you know, the art supplies do evolve too. And when Dave Johnson, bless his soul, introduced me to these Kurataki flexible nip nib uh, disposable pens. I got a couple in here. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Well, those were a game changer for me. Yeah. A hundred percent, because suddenly I could ink quick. It wasn't dragging the pen, you know, the first run of minimum wage. I like the way it looks, don't get me wrong. But that was fountain pen. And there was there was still more grace to that line than anything that had preceded it. That was kind of a, a piece of connective tissue. You used, you used that phrase before. Funny, I have a book called Connective Tissue. Um, but it was. Uh, but then the Kuratakis were like, oh, I can ink fast. Yeah. And everything changed. And like now I look at like all the work I've inked since the introduction, since the Johnson moment, since the Kuratakis became regular tools. So I look at minimum wage phase two, the image ones. And I see a lot more, I mean, in a weird way, it's definitely, I look at that and I feel like that's my work. That looks like me. But I also yeah. see more of my influences in it than I did earlier. Because I see more of the original mad guys in it because the line is beginning to look less fussy. The fussiness. You mean a little, little snappier? It's a lot snappier. Yeah. Um, because there's also not the fear of like, oh, this is an expensive little technical pen. I must be delicate with it. Kuratakis, yeah, these are a couple bucks a piece. I can smash that nib. I can, you know, get that big mm -hmm. fat line, get that little skinny line. Oh, the pen's no good anymore. I'll save it for dry brush technique and throw it in a pile, you know. Uh, it makes a difference. And also when I started doing finished work with pencil, you know, why should Gene Colin have all the fun? Uh, totally. And that again, and then that's basically the way I do most of my work is, you know, colored pencil, uh, as my black mm -hmm. and then, you know, digital paint, but it's made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the thing is, is that <clears throat> so many of these tools are an advancement in the production line, they've just made the process of getting to that final thing so much, I'm going to use the word easier. The, the work is still hard, but the tools have streamlined so much of the, that work that we had to do 30 years ago, or in your case, 40 years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just a really interesting you know, thing. And yeah, you're right. I mean, those Kurotakis are great. If I was drawing on a regular basis, you know, for my livelihood, they would be in full rotation. I wish, because... I wish I'd had anything like that earlier. I think the growth curve would have been tighter. The art would have been looser oh, yeah. and the learning curve would have been tighter. And, you know, Dave, I've known Dave since the early nineties. And I mean, he's, he's always, always been ahead of every single thing when it came to like 
tools. He, you know, he, you know, I think he was the first one to really get me to drawing with very thin color pencils. It's like, yeah, try those. Cause the line wasn't like drawing with a regular Prismacolor mm -hmm. because the lead was a little harder and smaller. You could get an accurate line yeah. and it made, it made the drawing aspect much more comfortable. Um, everything. I mean, he, he's always been sort of, you know, the man to go to for those things. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he does great work. And, uh, like I look at somebody like Dan Pinojan. Oh, my snappy line. The snappiest. He might be the snappiest guy in the business right now. Dude, Bob, <laughs> Bob Dan's, I mean, I have, you know, I mean, Dan is channeling all of the people that you've been talking about or, you know, Oh yeah. In, in, in a way that is just pure magic. See, I'd love, we, to, we, I'd love to write something for him someday. He and, you know, we're friends, but I would love to write a humor book for him someday. Cause, Oh my God, he would destroy it. He would just, it yeah. would be, it would be the best thing since the original mad, you know, just, just looks so amazing. He is like, he's like Jack Davis doing, you know, bare knuckled fight comic books. Yeah. It's so crazy. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, it. So when does the book, when's the book, the campaign for the book it is it starts next week or the week after the week after uh what's today's date <laughs> today's the 24th next week yeah next week yeah so this comes out this comes out the day before the camp so this will drop so when you're listening to this tomorrow the campaign starts yeah it starts so, on the 30th yeah or the day whatever I yeah think. whenever this comes out maybe this comes out, i don't know this comes out on a tuesday so i know that much that's as that's as a scientific as i get here, I'm looking at a calendar. Well, this comes out on the 30th. So if it comes out on the 30th, it comes out the same day. Ooh. So yeah. And it goes, so it's out on Zoop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me go into <laughs> salesman mode. Yeah. Everyone, please. No, but seriously, if you, if you're still listening, <laughs> if, <laughs> for everyone who hasn't uh, uh, said, God, this guy loves the sound of his own voice. I don't. Um, uh, but, it, uh, yeah, I, I do think it's going to be a pretty special book and, you know, I'm, I really want this to feel like something Harry Abrams would put out, you know, it's, it's not just, I, I think it's a good read. It's real solid and I think it's well designed. So, and again, that get your money's worth thing. It's going to be a, it's going to be a tome, you know, a real, a real bug smasher of a, of a heavy book. So, uh, yeah, please go over to zoom and, uh, show some support. I, I certainly would appreciate it. I'd love this book. I'd love this book to exist. Even if it features, this was the last, I guess the last thing you have to be objective. It's very hard to be objective. You know, when when you look at your old work and your first kind of instinct is to cringe a bit. But if you're going to do an overview, that's kind of the point. It's like, in a way, you put the cringe in to get to the good stuff. And to be honest, a lot of people love what makes me cringe. You know, one thing I had to get over uh, when I would do comic conventions is and again, this is this is learned behavior. I, I now know better. 
But when people used to bring me early stuff, the early stuff, I'd be there to be supporting my whatever the new thing was, and they shove something under me that's 20 years old, and I would go, oh, geez. Right. Don't do that. Don't make your fan feel like an idiot for liking what they like. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of stuff in there that maybe it doesn't meet my current standards, but I know a lot of people liked it. You know, I cut my teeth working for Cracked Magazine and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all that stuff was all part of the process. And, you know, so this book's going to have a little, I guess I could say this, it's got a little something for everyone because I've worked for everyone. So, you know. And the stories are great. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a great cross section of the last 40 years, you know, in the, you know, comics publishing industry. Let's keep that very vague. Well, thanks. And, you know, I wanted the written content of the book to also be good. I didn't want it to just be a picture book that people leave through, you know, I definitely wanted it to encapsulate, especially what it was like cutting one's teeth professionally starting in the, you know, mid eighties. It was a different world, completely different world. It was a completely different world. It was, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's great. I'm excited that it's, it's coming out. I mean, I think, you know, this, I think we can, you know, I mean, this, it's kind of why I do the podcast. I like, I like getting into the mind and the experience of the people who make the things that we all dig and, being able to sit and read something that you put down on paper that's about your thought and experiences of making these things is that's important i agree and it's uh and everyone does it different there's always going to be overlap and commonalities but that's the one interesting the interesting thing about art is yeah everyone's everyone's a little unique snowflake (laughs) (laughs) well my new snowflake friend um thanks for joining me man thank you for having me i i uh this is going to be a great 20 minutes when you cut it down (laughs) i'm good yeah it'll be it'll be tight tight 20 the link to the campaign will be in the description so anybody listening can go down there and click on it and go right to it so fabulous thanks bob all right thank you bye